The Dickheads are presented in color. Dickheads, welcome to a special interview, double interview with two historians and academics in the field. We've got Alec Neville Lee, author of Astounding, and returning to the Dickheads podcast for the second time, Lisa Yazik, the editor of The Future is Female. Both are really well versed in the history of this genre, so I think this should be an interesting discussion. What we're going to talk about today is cancel culture and how it affects the history of the science fiction genre. Now, a lot of waves were made in the genre recently when uh, the winner of this year's um, John W. Campbell New Writer Award, Jeanette, and, and how was it pronounced again? I'm sorry, I'm the worst with this. It's... it's mm. un? Yeah, um, mm. she won the... Um, John Campbell Memorial Award and gave a speech where she basically started with saying John W. Campbell is a fucking fascist, which and how his effect has uh, affected the genre going forward. I have the direct quote here. At some point we can go through that. But I want to start with Alec because you wrote the book on John W. Campbell, but we also are very interested in Lisa's opinion because she's a part of one of the Campbell Awards. So, Alec. Um, how did you react to this speech, being that you just wrote a biography about John W. Campbell? Well, it's funny. So I, I was there that night. Um, I was in Dublin uh, for Worldcon. And um, it's funny because I actually had approached that year's convention as kind of like my farewell to Campbell, because I'd spent the past three and a half years thinking about Campbell and his career and his legacy. And, you know, I was up for a Hugo Award, which is very cool. And I kind of saw this as like a valediction to that whole project. And then Jeanette started talking, and I was like, okay, oh. I think I'll probably be involved with Campbell for a little bit longer. Um, <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the first thing I, I, I should say, and, and I made a point of saying this to her, you know, when I saw her later that, that week, um, is that I actually support what she said. I, I think, um, absolutely. You know, I, I know where she was coming from. Um, I, I, you know, we could debate some of the specifics of uh, her speech, but there's no question in my mind that, um, you know, Campbell is a deeply problematic figure. And um, I'm actually glad that uh, her speech served as sort of a catalyst to, um, you know, bring up some of these issues. And, you know, I, I support the decision to rename the award. I, I think I think it was going to happen eventually. And I think uh, in this, the way it actually turned out, uh, the the process was a lot faster than a lot of people expected, and it ended up unfolding in a more dramatic fashion than I think uh, you know I you know some people might have wanted. But I, I have no question that there's no question in my mind that that award would have been renamed. I'm guessing within the next five years, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Now, what she said exactly was that he was responsible for setting a tone of science fiction that still haunts the genre to this day: sterile, male, white. Uh, exalting in the ambitions of imperialists, colonizers, settlers, and industrialists. And, you know, me personally, I, I agree with her that, you know, he was a problematic figure. So, you know, th that wasn't the issue. I think what a lot of people had issue with was the intensity with which the crowd kind of like got the pitchforks out. And it just seemed like, you know, regardless of, how valid what she said or didn't say was, I think some of the old guard 
some of the older writers in the community were really taken back by the intensity in the room. Not so much her, but the intensity in the room. I don't know, since you were there, did you get a feel for like how crazy it was in the room? Um, I mean, it, there certainly was a very, um, you know, vocal response. Um, and, you know, I mean, my, my take on that is that it's kind of par for the course when it comes to the history of science fiction. I mean, these conventions have always been dramatic, fraught, you know, uh, events. And, you know, it's not the first time that, you know, there have been moments like that. Um, um I mean, I, I actually think that uh, the, the, the award... Um, that 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 award would not have been retitled without um, that kind of catalyst. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one thing I can say, you know, maybe kind of before we we move on, is that I had actually proposed a panel for that convention about whether the award should be renamed, mm. and I had submitted that idea for a panel probably six months earlier because I figured that was a conversation that was going to happen. Um, you know, that panel had never happened, and and you know, sort of the way things. Um, actually occurred was, uh, you know, a little bit different from what I had in mind, but I, I've come to think <laughs> since that, you know, it could not have been a gradual process. I, I think um, the kind of debate I had envisioned, you know, might've led to some interesting conversations about Campbell's legacy, but I don't think it would have led to any kind of substantive change. I, I think, um, I think that, you know, it, it needed someone like Jeanette to kind of light that powder keg to actually, um, you know, kind of, advance that discussion to the point where it led to like like a meaningful change yeah so lisa you're you're currently involved in another award that has john campbell's name on it can you tell us about that award and and what you guys are going through right now in in relation to this this issue right right so this is the john w campbell memorial award for best novel of the year and this is um an award that's associated with the Gunn Center for uh, Science Fiction at University, or is it Kansas? Kansas University, University of Kansas, probably. Um, just forgetting right now, end of a long semester, but in <laughs> Kansas, in Lawrenceville, and um, it's you know it's a great award, and we've uh, you know, it's a marvelous opportunity to survey the field each year because it's a lot of novels to look through, and it's really exciting. But um, and and it's cool because we have a you know two maybe three different generations of people on the award, and so I can say it's been a rousing discussion since uh, the since the speech at at the Hugo's or at Rollcon rather, and we've had a lot of debate. And as you might know, um, the current directors of the center, Chris McKitterick and um, Keith Johnson, have already issued a statement saying that. Uh, they're for sure renaming the Campbell Conference and that we're currently discussing renaming the award. And that is a discussion that's been going on and it's been complex. And, um, you know, part of me, of course, would love to dish details because you want to process these things with other <laughs> like-minded people. But part of me thinks, you know, discretion is the better part of valor. So I'll right. just say it's been a lively debate. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and I'm wondering, Lisa, and, and yeah. I, I want to hear from both of you on, because to me, as problematic as Campbell is, I think it's impossible to deny the impact that he had on the genre. And right. I, I understand why people want to change the names of awards. I, I understood why it was hard for H.P. Lovecraft's name to be on the fantasy or his face to be on the award when he had said so many problematic things. Right. I understand that. But at the same time, as a, as a historian who 
studies the genre, the the give and take. And I remember in our last interview, we talked about how he helped to create, or you know, that give and take with Judith Merrill was, for example, right. very important right. in moving her forward as a science fiction mm-hmm. writer, even though he was kind of being dismissive. But his role as as a steward of, of the genre, I mean, do we lose something if we don't continue to honor that at some point? Yeah. Um, you know, it's an interesting question, but I'm going to say no, I don't think we do. I mean, first of all, we're not talking about we're not talking about canceling the history of science fiction here. Right. We're talking about, you know, science fiction is a living genre and history is is a living kind of narrative as well. And the fact that it's going to change over time, frankly, shouldn't surprise anyone, um, especially we're all interested in science fiction, which is a literature of change. Like things change. We, we just need to be cool with this, I think. But, you know, more importantly, we, what we're talking about, right, is, is, is nuancing this and not necessarily erasing his legacy, but, um, but opening the way to celebrate how, uh, much that legacy has grown since his time, perhaps, is, is a good way to think about it. Um, but, you know, cause yeah, we talked about the fact that like Campbell in some ways with his antagonistic relationship to Merrill helped shape her career. But he also really, in some ways, tried to block that career as well, right? Because, of course, there's the famous story that Campbell said, no woman can write science fiction. And Merrill said, I'm going to write a story and you'll buy it. And he did. And it kicks off this whole subgenre of science fiction. But then he he refused to buy her second story, which was just a straight up space colonization story. And, you know, she went on to place it elsewhere and it was very successful. But what Campbell wanted to do was to shape a certain kind of career, right? And to sort of mm-hmm. have his hands all over what women's fiction would look like. and so, you know, do we want to continue to allow him to have that kind of editorial control or do we want to <laughs> celebrate the diversity of what the genres become? I mean, it seems to me the latter. And I think I was just at um, the CUNY City Tech Conference, which was held in conjunction with Analog for the 90th anniversary of, of that magazine. And uh, Travis, oh gosh, what's his last name? K- is it Katar? Katri. Katri, thank you. Katri. Katri? Yes. Katri. Audrey, um, he was talking about how, why they decided to change the name of their Campbell Award. And I thought this was really interesting that they had made the point that it's not that they wanted to lose Campbell's legacy, but they wanted to honor their sense of a man who they thought would want to get out of the way of science fiction's future and to let it grow. Mm. And that they thought he himself would be the, well, First, maybe first, maybe not the first, but that he himself would eventually say, you know, if this is going to cause problems in the community and not allow us to have like a meaningful dialogue and grow, then I'm out. Do you now, Alec? I like that story, and I'm going with it. (laughs) Right, but Alec, you you wrote the book on John W. Campbell. Do you think he would have that reaction, or? Um, I mean, I'm frankly not sure that I would agree with that statement. Um, I mean, I, I'm very happy to kind of let that be the standard analog response to, the, to that question, because I think it's a good one. Yeah. Campbell was <laughs> right. a complicated guy. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he certainly did have a particular vision of science fiction that involved him kind of being in charge. You know, he, he wanted to kind of be the overseer of this laboratory of writers where he could develop ideas and, um, you know, basically have this... Um, you know, this huge contingent of writers developing science fiction along the lines that he had set down. And that's, that's, you know, a key part of his personality. Um, what I would say though is that, uh, you know, Campbell would want to be talked about. I think he enjoyed being controversial, controversial. I think he enjoyed being the center of attention. He certainly enjoyed an argument. Um, so I think he would welcome that. 
And, you know, I think he would, or, you know, I mean, maybe taking a step back, you know, uh, Campbell was not a huge presence in, uh, you know, the, the conversation around science fiction until recently. I, I would say his profile is actually higher now than it has been in years, in part because of, you know, the controversy over the award. And, and I think... Um, and your book. Sure. And, and, you know, I would like to think that my book plays some part <laughs> in that. Um, I mean, one reason I wrote the book is because there had not been a Campbell biography and there hadn't really been a study of, uh, you know, Campbell's career that, you know, I, I just wanted to see as a fan myself. Um, but I, I think that um, in retrospect, you know, it could well be that uh, having the, the the award renamed was the price that had to be paid to restore Campbell to kind of like the the central uh, place in the history of science fiction that I, I do think he deserves. Because you know when you actually look at him and and think about what he what he did and wrote, you know you find things that are very troubling. You know and and they're very difficult to to. Well, can we you know, can, can we talk about that for a minute? I mean, we're we've talked about it as fans, as people that know exactly what he did and what he what made the controversy but there might be people listening that have no idea what right. the controversies are and about his sexism and his etc cetera, etc cetera. you know right. what what are these things well okay so so i'm going to step back from the um question of whether Campbell was a fascist because that gets us tangled up in like the question of what is a fascist. A, yeah. there, there are certain things. You know, it's, it's a little it's far. Fine. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that if you have a certain definition in mind, there, there are aspects of Campbell's like, personality that are not entirely not inconducive to that reading. Um, but there are other elements of his career that are unambiguous. Um, I think he was racist. Uh, you know, he expressed racist views in editorials, in his letters, in private conversation. Um, and some of these things are, are horrifying. I mean, I, I've read, I probably read more of Campbell's, you know, uh, letters and nonfiction than anybody else alive. And there are things that <laughs> I found incredibly troubling. You know, they're very hard to read. Um, and more importantly, I, I do think it affected the writers he published. You know, I think Campbell bears part of the blame for reducing, like, or constraining the range of voices that he published in his magazine um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, by extension in science fiction as a whole. And to me, that's, that's very clear cut. And, and right. I, I think that in itself should be enough to say, you know, we can talk about his importance to the field, which I think is undeniable, but maybe he is not the right person, uh, you know, to, to name an award after. Well, I, I think uh, what Lisa said kind of reminded me of what people say about uh, civil war, Southern, statues you know having just because you get rid of the award name doesn't mean you're getting rid of the history it's the same thing it's we don't we don't necessarily need to elevate or worship or anything uh, these these people that turned out to be problematic i'm not a fan of that word but the that uh did change history and made history but they don't need to be in the forefront of our thoughts at all times yeah. And especially for people that, you know, find the things they did. And, and we'll talk about the difference between a private life and a public life as well at some point. But the, the fact that they were so un, un, unsavory <laughs> to a certain point in their private life means that they should, they should be praised for the things they did that elevated the genre, but they should be uh, put in the background is that that ba that's basically what we're saying here, correct? 
Well, I mean, I'm not sure I would put them in the background. I, I think what I'm, I'm trying to get at here um, in my own way is that a person doesn't have to be a good person to be important. Uh, right. You know, a person doesn't have to be, you know, in some ways a person doesn't have to have a positive impact on um, a field to ha- to be significant. Um, and I think Campbell, you can make a strong case that he hurt science fiction in certain ways. You mm-hmm. could say that, you know, what science fiction became is limited uh, because of, you know, his definition of what it could be. But that doesn't change the fact that he was the one who, you know, for, I would say, at least a decade or more was sort of the arbiter of, of what writers and what ideas were kind of seen as, as in like the, the, the main line of science fiction. Right. And, you know, you can acknowledge that and also acknowledge that maybe, you know, his influence might've been negative. It might've been, you know, I, I want to say science fiction would be better if Campbell had never existed, but it would be different. Um, well, that's a, okay. Then, then we have to talk about the strong personality, you know, it, it is that something that someone that had these other views would have been able to do? Would, would someone with progressive views at that time period have been able to make the impact that someone like John W. Campbell made? But I think Lisa and I talked about that in our interview. And Lisa, I'm wondering if you could, going on what Larry had just brought up there and the personalities, didn't we see other editors like Tony Boucher? Yeah. 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 Like kind of fill that gap a little right. bit? Right. Right. I mean, you know, so first of all, I just want to go back to, to the point about Campbell. One of the things that's interesting that has happened in the conversation that we've had in my award committee is that no matter where we fall on the renaming issue, we all agreed that those of us who teach, when we teach Campbell, you just, you, you teach the controversy, right? You teach both the role he played for the better and the worse, right? And because all of that feeds into understanding that scene and yeah, Dave, as we talked about, they're absolutely right. There were other editors out there. There were, what, mm-hmm. 47 magazines at the height of the magazine boom in the 50s. And one thing that's interesting that I found when I worked on the history of women in science fiction in that era is I found interviews with at least three different uh, women writers who all said the same thing. And they said, yeah, Campbell was really a problem. But you know what? There were a lot of other places to publish. And it was he was actually kind of easy to ignore. And you could build yourself a perfectly <laughs> great career without him. And yeah. I think that that's interesting. And maybe um, a part of that history that we don't talk about as much, which is surprising, because it seems to me like it's the experiments of magazine of fantasy and science fiction and galaxy that really led as much to the new wave as as anything that that Campbell ever suggested. Well, and look, we're a podcast devoted to Philip K. Dick, and we mm-hmm. never we never ignore the stuff when we're reading when we're reading and reviewing the books that we've read so far mm-hmm. on this show. We've never ignored when we found something problematic, um, and, and, and we get a ration of shit for it. We do. I mean, we from, get from we, certain fans that are like, "Why are you guys so PC?" Yeah, talking about this stuff. It's not important. It wasn't important to him. It's mm-hmm. not important to. <laughs> Me, the, the fan talking, you know, but it's there. It's part of the present culture. Yeah. It needs to be discussed. But here's the thing. We find it okay to point out the things that we find problematic and be like, well, we still like the other stuff. And yeah, it doesn't have to be one or the other. And you don't have to hate it because of those things. Yeah. Right. Well, isn't that like some of the trick of American cultures? We're always told us to be either or you either love it, you hate it. It's in or it's out. Right. Um, and, and I, I feel like this is something that we're trying to negotiate, but it's a really tricky one, especially with 
someone like Campbell, who clearly uh, touches off strong passions, right? Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I, I just want to say, you know, like that, that's very true. And I think it's also true, especially of like science fiction fandom. I, I think there yeah. is a sense that, you know, we are fans or many of us are, are, are fans. And a lot of the scholarship and the discussion about writers, uh, you know, of the past is based on that point of view. Uh, the, the fan point of view. And um, I found that, you know, I mean, part of the price of taking someone seriously is looking at both the positive and the negative aspects of that person's legacy. I mean, people read my book and say, oh, it's so balanced, or they say, you know, it's attacking these guys, you know, wh why would you write a book that was so critical of, of you know, these writers <laughs> who you respect? And I'm like, that is how I would show my respect. I, mm -hmm. I take them seriously. Yeah. And I try to kind of give them the same treatment that you would give any other major literary figure in any genre. And, and I think, you know, I, I want to see more works like that coming out of science fiction fandom that are willing to tackle these issues head on. Yeah, and the Futurians, like that whole group that came out of New York City in the 30s, they they loved being controversial and making people angry. And like they 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 enjoyed that. So, you know, some of that was kind of show and some of it wasn't. But, you know, I, I don't know. I I I think what's harder for me these days is seeing some of the authors who we know are progressive. I, this is kind of a funny story that I, I hope will segue into how I see some of the younger writers and fans treating some of the older, the old guard, um, in the science fiction community. My father recently, he at, um, Indiana university, he had a, um, there was a secretary in his program or at his school who was non-binary and was transitioning to this non-binary, you know, and my father, 83 years old, was trying to process this and trying very hard to be respe respectful about it, but it was something that was completely out of his context, right? But he tried. And what was interesting to me recently was that Norman Spinrad got the ire of some of the younger science fiction fans and writers because of an essay that he wrote in Asimov's. And Norman Spinrad is as progressive as the 60s science fiction had, besides maybe Ursula Le Guin. He was an anarchist. He was an anarcho-syndicalist. He still is. Um, he has very progressive views. But when I saw people talking about him, it was like he was this old kook who, you know, and would we talk to our grandparents that way? You know what I'm saying? Like... I don't know. Anyways, so we can get into the spin rad thing and that. I'm wondering if, if you've seen, if either of you have seen the younger writers interacting with some of the old guard and, and seen what I'm talking about. Well, I mean, we, this is, this is, you know, we're, we're talking about cancel culture. And I think one thing that we have to remember is that, you know, everyone gets canceled eventually. Right. I mean, I mean, time is like the great canceller. And right. um, this is true. Of Except for William Shakespeare. Generation. <laughs> um, and we, we happen to be, you know, I mean, everyone, you know, it, it's always it always feels as though it's happening for the first time. But, you know, this dynamic between old writers, old fans and young writers, young fans, it's played out before. You know, it's, it's nothing new. And I think um, the dynamics we're seeing here, you know, they're, they're actually very familiar. Yeah. Um, and one thing it's. I had said, um, you know, before the show started and Alec, before you joined us is it, it's, it's also, it, it's definitely true. I agree with you that you see this again and again in science fiction where it's an uppity community that likes to, uh, speak to it, 
it's, it's mine freely, right? Which um, is great. What's interesting Love is it. we're also, I think, seeing it more generally in culture right now that um, as someone who's a feminist and who teaches gender studies, I've really seen just this massive shift in the last five or six years as we've moved into a fourth wave of feminism. Um, and as uh, women and other people who, do, who define our women identify um, start to really speak out. And there's this real energy and, and vehemence. And I feel like that sort of that that energy, the sort of anger you sometimes see with younger authors speaking to older authors, we're seeing as well in uh, the feminist community that this sort of like sense of like, why didn't you finish this work? Why am I still <laughs> dealing with these problems here? This is insane, which of course it is, right? Like we should we should all listen. It's true. It is insane. But at the same time, these are bloodless revolutions and change is slow, even if it's inevitable, right? Well, surely, right. Manson. I, I, I will like jump in with one thing I should have probably oh, mentioned sure. is that, you know, when I say that these dynamics are, are familiar, you know, there is one difference, which is that um, if you look back at like the new wave in the 60s, uh, you know, these are mostly white male authors rebelling against older white male authors. And the, the, the diversification of science fiction and fantasy is a real phenomenon. You know, yeah. it definitely happened, you know, in the last generation, you know, in a very profound way. And so I think it adds this extra element to yeah. the conversation that maybe is, uh, that it is novel and that, yeah. you know, we're, yeah. we're dealing with in some ways oh. for the first time. Well, yeah. sort of. I mean, there were a lot of women in that generation. Let's not lose like Le Guin and Ross <laughs> and, and, you know, Dorman and everyone who, but it's good. The landscape's gotten more complicated just as it has in feminism now. It's not about women versus men. I mean, there's so many other axes of identity that we look at and it just, the landscape becomes bigger and there are more voices and more positions, I think. Well, that is, the, and uh, that's radically different. I got a, right. uh, uh, there was an interview with Shirley Manson from, from garbage, I think is the, oh, yeah. the band she's yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. And she said, when Generation X was growing up, they had a certain view that due to original feminism, due to the, the civil rights movement, that these, these problems have been solved. Yeah. And they sort of sat on their laurels thinking that these problems have been solved. Everyone's going to yeah. think like, like I do that, that, you know, through the past generations, we've learned our lesson. We don't need to be active. Right. And, and that's when the, the newer generations came along and said, no, you, we do need yeah. to be active. These things aren't going to stay the same. Yeah. People are going to regress into racism and, and prejudice and everything unless we actively work at it. Right. And that, that's, that was a strong lesson for me as a Gen Xer. I was like, oh, that, that makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. It, One thing I, I also you know, want to say is that, um, you know, there's actually a reason why this conversation is happening now and not 50 years ago. And it's largely because of people like Campbell. Um, and, and, you know, I say this as someone who spent a lot of time thinking about Campbell's impact on science fiction. Um, you, you asked, like, is there a version of a progressive editor who could have had the same impact mm. Campbell did in, the, let's say, the late 60s? And the answer is yes. And I think that could have been Campbell himself. There's like a different version of Campbell mm. who, you know, believed that science fiction was about having this discussion of the future about generating analogies and, and going through, you know, possible, possible tomorrows. And, and there is, you know, in some alternate universe, there is a version of Campbell who would have said the way to do this properly is to consciously diversify my circle of writers. Um, because that way you get perspectives from people who are being, you know, affected by cultural change right now in ways that 
the mostly white male engineers that I am publishing, you know, may not be. Um, and that's, that's a perfectly valid uh, approach he could have taken that would have been consistent with his stated goals for what science fiction was. But he, he didn't go that, that route. Um, well, because the flaw is he only saw his own perspective. Right. You know, it, the only thing he thought the future would hold were things that he could understand from his perspective. And that, that's why we see problems with the, the last Jedi or, yeah, the last Jedi is that people don't understand the perspective of a woman or a person of color or, or they, they choose not to, I don't, I don't know if it's a choice or not. <laughs> the people just don't understand alternate perspectives. Yeah. And, well, it's, it's, and it's, it's much easier right? to say that person is wrong than to say, I don't understand that perspective. Right. I mean, I think it takes an effort of the, the will of empathy to actually say, I'm going to like try to, you know, um, seek out voices that are different than mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, for Campbell, you know, he, he wasn't quite ready to go there. And, and the one thing I like to point out is that, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, science fiction wasn't really diverse in the first place. And so why is it Campbell's fault? But, you know, Campbell was not just passively accepting manuscripts that came over the transom. <laughs> you know, he was going out and looking for scientists. He was yeah. kind of looking for engineers. He was trying to find certain kinds of people to publish in Astounding and later Analog. And again, there's a version of Campbell that could have invested that same energy into finding people who didn't look like him, who could bring you know different things to the magazine. But he he just chose to go a different way. Yeah, and and because of that particular magazine having such a big footprint, it's why people think of him as being, you know, the it's the one we remember. So you know, it's just like. Lovecraft wasn't the only one writing weird tales in the 30s, right? But he's the one that has the lasting impact that we remember. And maybe we don't remember, um, I'm, I'm, I'm blank, Ashton Clark's, uh, Clark, Clark Ashton Smith, for example, you know, another voice. Now we did, there were some other voice. I mean, we have your, your Ursula Gwynn's, your Samuel Delaney's in the early days. But here's the funny thing is like, I didn't know that, Sam Delaney was was a gay black man until after I'd been reading his work for 25 for years. years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's great that we're getting more diversity. I go out of my way to read um science fiction authors of color. Uh one of my favorite reads of the, the last year, Karen Lord's Unraveling, which was a new discovery for me, for example. And Specifically, I was looking for a science fiction author of color when, when I, that particular day I was looking for a book. And. But see, David, that's, that's what many people have a problem with is you were seeking a person of color instead of it. it well, because I wanted to, I want a diverse they just voice, want right? The diversity, what ultimately the goal is, is for diversity to not be something you have to choose, but it just happens. Sure, and it does sometimes, and that's that's sort of the the goal for I think everyone, except for the people that are like I'm this thing, and that's the only <laughs> that's the only thing there is, right? But what I think, and I think for this discussion, I think I still like. But we're at the point in history where you have to you have to actively seek out certain things if you want to read a certain well a certain point of view. I guess you have to actively seek it. Well, I think there's more and more voices out there today. And I think what you're saying, Alec, is that that's why this debate is happening now, right? Um, to, a, to a certain extent. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Anyways, that's that's the way that I'm hoping that that's the way the reason why these things are are changing is that we're we're having more voices. So, and yes, in the past we were. You're right. We were having generations of of mostly, you know, white male writers passing on to other generations of of that. But yeah. as Lisa has pointed out many times, there were plenty of female voices. Um you know, operating in science fiction well back to the 30s, right? With- that a lot of us thought were male voices. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. But, um, but I mean, how do we, I mean, how do we, how do we teach this history and, and, uh, be aware of, of the shortcomings of the genre in the past while still celebrating what, what good it did? I don't know, Lisa. I mean, how do you, how, how do you approach that as at, at Georgia Tech? Yeah. Well, right. So one of the things that I'm trying to do is obviously to get away from the great man of history model of teaching history. I mean, in some ways, it's tough because like you do want to spend time, but then you just you teach to the complexities of it. So right, um, you can teach just that right that that Campbell is an important voice in this generation of editors, but that there are these other editors, you know people like Boucher and uh, Horace Gould, but then also like Lilith Lorraine, who was a first generation science fiction writer who hated Campbell and hated where science fiction went in the forties and fifties. And so she started all these free magazines and would like publish the craziest people. Right. And so I try to give a sense of the tapestry of things going on um, to give a sense of how change happens. Because if you just tell the story that here's Campbell and he was this monolithic person um, who had total control over things, then how, how did change happen? I mean, it just, right. it, it's not a great way to theorize change. Um, so yeah, I like to sort of teach to like clusters of people. I'm trying to do like the clusters of people kind of history now, like groups of people trying to work on ideas at once. And so that to me is a way to leave these people in, but also a way to maybe to, to mark their limits and try to do it in a way that'll honestly just not cause lots of arguments in the classroom just so we can move on and learn as much as possible but also right to give a sense of here are Campbell's limits and here are where other people tried to pick up the slack or reiterated what he did and amplified both the good and the bad um Hmm. and it takes a lot of time and it's really complicated but it uh gives the students a lot of good research projects so there's that um and a sense that they can have a stake in this history. Like, it's kind of cool to be showing them how the history is changing, even as I'm teaching it. Um, you know, that's, that's amazing. It's, it, we don't often get a sense of really witnessing history, I think. Right. Um, and this is a kind of low stakes, but cool way to do it. Yeah. Uh, the broader view of history is definitely a much better way to go than teaching the, the basics. Yeah. Yeah. And Alec, you also wrote a lot about Robert Heinlein and especially L. Ron Hubbard is so much more of a shady figure in science fiction, <laughs> right? And, you know, so you spent a lot of time looking at, at these people, you know, and, and it's funny because like with Heinlein, um, you know, I discovered through, cause we did this series this year, um, and we're slowly releasing them, but we've recorded most of them where I reviewed all the Hugo winners of the sixties. And so I got a chance to, uh, reread three Heinlein novels for this. And, you know, Heinlein was so confusing. So like, how do we even cancel Heinlein when like he cancels himself out half the time? 
between Starship Troopers and Moon is a Heart's Mistress, it's hard to believe it's the same guy, right? <laughs> and, right. And some of these guys, like, cancel themselves out. Like, I, I'm wondering, like, how much when you were writing Astounding and you were putting this in, how much were you thinking ahead to how fandom was going to react to these little bits and pieces of history that you were putting into the book? You know, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because it kind of ties into something I wanted to, to bring up, which is, um, you know, we talk about cancel culture, you know, and there is like a fantastic example of cancel culture and operation that no one really talks about, which is L. Ron Hubbard, uh, who was effectively canceled from the history of science fiction, you know, at some point, let's say in like the mid 80s. And for great reasons. I mean, you know, talk about someone you want to like remove from, you know, the story of, of the genre that you love, you know, Hubbard, you know. But he Absolutely still wrote the final. He still wrote the final blackout, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, 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 Hubbard was removed, and um, a big part is astounding. And it's when I knew it was going to be, in some ways, controversial. Um, was trying to restore Hubbard to that narrative, to to the how science fiction developed, and um, you know how it was perceived by people at the time in the late thirties and early forties, because Hubbard was a popular writer. I'm not saying he was a good writer or that he was, you know, better than other writers who I think deserve more recognition. But, you know, when you take him out of that story, you actually end up with this incomplete picture. I mean, when you put Hubbard back inside, especially with regard to how he worked with Campbell, a lot of stuff makes sense uh, for the first time, at least for me, that, that you know, doesn't really make sense without him. Um, and, you know, I, I have gotten pushback. You know, people look at that title and that they wonder what Hubbard is doing there. And, and, you know, I've been asked, you know, why would you put Hubbard in this book? And my answer is, you know, why wouldn't I? You know, he is <laughs> right. arguably the most famous writer from that period, for better or for worse. True. He would pull people, asking them to name a, a pulp writer from the 1930s. You know, probably Hubbard would be near the top. Um, I, mean, I mean, for reasons that, you know, have little to do with his fiction. Um, and he's, he's a fascinating figure. He is, he is, you know, I mean, th there was no way I was going to write this story and not talk about this stuff. Um, but <laughs> right. you know, it kind of ties back into what I said earlier about a lot of the history of science fiction being written by fans for fans, you know, people, they get uncomfortable, you know, not just because, you know, Hubbard is inherently controversial, but because his place in that story raises questions about a lot of the assumptions that uh, people have about science fiction and how it developed. Yeah, and the thing about Hubbard is, you know, um, it kind of takes a maniac personality to write a 10-part series like that Mission Earth, like, crazy <laughs> thing that he wrote, too. And, like, I, I will – and at the same time, like, I think Final Blackout is an incredible piece of science fiction. So, yeah, he invented Scientology, and he was probably the first of this whole era to be canceled, but – you can't take away books like Fear and Final Blackout. They they are uh, really important pieces of of genre from that that period, and I think it's a prime example of um, you don't have to like the guy, right, to think his work is a fascinating and interesting read. Well, now right. that's that's an interesting thing, is because I've met a couple of people recently. I'd say over the past year that say it does matter if the person is a good person, whether their work is valid or not. I, I, I met a, a college student that said, uh, she saw no reason that all artists couldn't be happy, well-adjusted people. 
she hasn't read and any Freud, clearly. I mean, right? she is a, she is a smart a smart woman, but she but to say that it just made me realize that there's such a disconnect now between me and, and the people nowadays who or I don't know if anybody has ever believed that art comes from a well-adjusted place, but that there is a belief now that you can, you can be a well-adjusted happy person and create great works of art. And that's should be the norm. Uh, that's rather, that's rather optimistic to say the least. Now I would say too, Lisa, you published in the future is female, um, a short, uh, a short story co-written by a very problematic figure yourself. So, yeah. um, and I'm wondering the choice, uh, to include, uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley mm-hmm. in, in your collection must have been one that you discussed probably very deeply, right? It was, it was. We, we talked about it and talked about it and we thought we wargamed it from every angle and then we decided to go for it. And both the praise and criticism we got came from completely, it it was nothing we could have anticipated. It was so (laughs) strange. Um, So, yeah. um, And and I wanted to include it. And we, like I said, we thought long and hard about it for a couple of reasons. First, Marion Zimmer Bradley was an important figure in the landscape at that time. And, you know, obviously a lot, history has really shown that she was a hugely problematic and, and disturbed woman. And it's actually interesting. I had, when we were putting it together, I was reading Joanna Russ's letters to Sonia Dorman. And um, first of all, they were kind of mean girl letters. I was shocked, actually. <laughs> like, wow. But um, they they had they hated Marion Zimmer Bradley and her husband. And they would just be like, oh, my God, here they come again at their conference, like trying to foist their kids off on people. And it's interesting, like everyone seemed to know something was wrong, but no one could quite pin it down. Like and, and, and the way it came out was interesting. So I think that's mm-hmm. that was all very interesting. But we decided to go ahead and put her in. And we decided to do this story because it had had an impact on people. And uh, we wanted to show the very real difficulty that clearly uh, a lot of science fiction authors were having in the 60s trying to deal with edgy to- like topics like how do you deal with homosexuality when it's not something that's in your wheelhouse to talk about, but you know it's important and you know you want to tell a story about it. And, you know, um, sometimes people fail at their art and you know, at, even at that time, that was a controversial story. Juanita Colson said they weren't allowed to put their names on the story because they were women, right? Mm. Um, yeah. And, uh, so that was, and, and, and that was interesting. Or she wasn't at least. And, um, that, uh, so, yeah, so we put the side with the story in and it was interesting. My editor was really worried that he would get a lot of pushback as a gay guy because that was right when a lot of the pedophilia stuff had come out about the Zimmermans. And he was worried that often people like make that sort of stupid association with like gayness and pedophilia. And And he's like, I don't know. This is going to be a mess. We're going to get all this pushback. And we did, but that wasn't the pushback we got. And, and some people were like, Oh, I'm really glad you put that story in there. You know, it was an important story at the time. So Hmm. I was shocked a few people really liked it, but boy, Oh boy. I say (laughs) there are some young up and coming non-binary writers who were like, we hate the story and we hate you for ever making it exist again. And <laughs> I, I, I feel yeah. really bad. We certainly, our goal was never to upset that way, but at the same time, you know I, what? Sometimes a lot of people and you provoke and we decided yeah. we were going to just like embrace the controversy. So we are interested in hearing people's feelings. Yeah. People should not be scared uh, to provoke, you know, mm. and, and that's, 
it was scary though. And it's scary to read those reviews, you know? I mean, I feel like that's happening a lot. A lot of energy aimed at you all of a sudden. Yeah. And so one of the things that was interesting about the Spinrad thing was that, so part of what made people mad about the Spinrad piece is that he was arguing that a lot of what is nominated for the Nebula Awards at this point is more fantasy than actually science Mm -hmm. fiction. And people were very offended that he would do that he would point this out and what was interesting is that asmoth's magazine eventually pulled his article briefly and even though it was meant to be criticism and it was meant to be an opinion piece and eventually people there were people who stuck up for spinrad and said oh wait 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 a second that's an opinion piece he has a right to that opinion right and it was really interesting to see that um so what he was basically saying was that that he wanted more pure science fiction or wanted to see more pure science fiction because that had been why the Nebula Award was created originally, oh, right? Okay. okay. Yeah. And so some of the younger writers were very mm-hmm. offended by this because they were mm-hmm. like, hey, we want everyone to be included. And if you, you don't have to mm-hmm. write ray guns and spaceships to be sci-fi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And and I saw where his point was, and I saw their point. But the the interesting thing was that the rush was to just pull the article, not to have a discussion about it. This should have been provocative enough to say, like, hey, let's talk about it. Yeah. yeah. But it was pull the article, right, at first. And then it eventually got back up, and Asimov's issued a statement saying, like, hey, sci-fi is here for everybody. And... If that's the case, I'm glad because I'd like it to still be here for Norman Spinrad because I think he's an important voice in this community. And what I was afraid of was that here's this guy, this older gentleman in the movement, right? And I was like, would you talk to your grandparents that way if you thought they didn't understand what was going on today? You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know how both of you feel about this, um, but I just feel like I would like to see the younger people in this community listen to those older voices even if they don't agree right instead of wanting them to just go away right yeah Uh, i mean i have like a funny um like perspective on that piece because the first half is a review of my book uh which he he liked (laughs) uh, to a point um and but i i i read it again recently just you know to prepare for this uh interview and you know what struck me about the second half the the part that caused the controversy is that you know it's actually not a very well argued piece um, I, I, I do kind of see what he's getting at and I want to respect his opinion, but I, I felt like he didn't convey it very well. Um, which, which was disappointing to me because I think there are, there, there was a, like a germ of something meaningful there, but, um, you know, he, he makes this point that, uh, you know, like science fiction and fantasy, uh, the lines between these two genres are becoming amorphous in a way that I think he finds, um, you know, discomforting. Uh, but then, you know, a few paragraphs earlier, you know, he, he takes me to task somewhat for not talking enough about A.E. Van Vogt, uh, <laughs> who, number one, I think is probably, after Heinlein, the most interesting writer of that period in science fiction, but who is a weird gender blending, you know, borderline incoherent, uh, you know, writer who, who, you know, clearly is working in a vein that's very different from hard science fiction. You know, I mean, I, I don't mm-hmm. even understand sometimes how he and Campbell were able to, to work together because, uh, you know, they, they did have very different points of view. Um, and so the idea of like writers who kind of 
in this clumsy, primitive way or, or, or conflating genres and, and, you know, making these like messy stories. I mean, that is central to science fiction. If, if you right. see someone at, like Van Vogt as, as being an, an important figure. And, and so I think that his argument, you know, it was it was ostensibly about, you know, the incursion of, of fantasy into science fiction. But I think deep down it was about something else. Um, and I think as a result, the argument he made was like a little bit muddled. And, and I think um, that's a shame because I, I, I do wish that he had written something that um, would have raised some of these points in a more organized way. Yeah. But at the same time, he's 80 years old. And, and I think... You know, speaking as somebody who was helping to take care of an 80-year-old father for a long time here, um, you know, my father was a, was a gifted academic with 50 years in political science. But towards the end, his arguments – he was he was working right up until he died. But, you know, his arguments were not as coherent as, as they were 20, 30 years ago, you know. But Lisa, I know we got a heart out for you here soon. So yeah. I, I want to get back to you really quickly. How do you feel about how the younger generation is 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 addressing these um, <laughs> these elders in the field? These younger whippersnappers. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I have mixed feelings. Um, and again, I, it's interesting. It's the same mixed feelings I have about watching these tensions between different generations of, of feminists and um you know, part of me uh, would like this to all just get along and do rational discourse. But that's why I like I went to academia um, where it doesn't work there either. But at least we can pretend it's closer. Sometimes. It's closer. <laughs> um, we, we strive for it, even yeah. if we fail often. Um, but uh, gosh, where was I going with this? I, I'm sort of losing track of what I'm saying here. Oh, younger people, older people. You know, here's the thing. On the one hand, of course, I wish that like I'm annoyed when like younger people are like, well, I don't need your help. Get out of, just get out of my way. And I'm like, actually, you need a lot of my help in a bunch of ways, but you know, you know, everyone has to learn on their own. So, you know, on the one hand, I do feel it's kind of a generational thing. Every generation has to raise its voice and, and be loud and say its thing. And it will have its turn to have the next generation yell at it. So that's something. Um, and the other thing is you sometimes have to lift your voice, right? I mean, well-behaved people don't make history. I know it's like a stupid bumper sticker, but it's also true. And I think this is something that, that goes back to what Alec had said earlier. If, uh, Jeanette Ng hadn't raised her voice, I don't know how, if or how or when the Campbell Award name would have changed. Um, but it worked, right? Whether or not we liked it. And now it has started this discussion that goes elsewhere and that has spread to the Tip Three Award, which is now the Sidewise Award, right? Yeah. Or the Otherwise Award. Otherwise, and, yeah. Um, yeah. And, it's interesting how it keeps going. So how do I feel about it? I have really mixed feelings. I don't personally like it, especially not when I'm the target of the anger and yelling. <laughs> but, um, you know, sometimes people have to yell to make themselves heard. And I kind of admire it, you know. So, yeah, so, I'm, I'm benched on this one, I have to say. <laughs> so, Lisa, we're going to lose you in a minute. But I think we're, yeah. we might keep going with Alec on talking. I want to talk to him about this uh, Norman Spinrad review of the yeah, article. So. Uh, Lisa, uh, yeah. how, how, um, if people want to, um, connect with your work, uh, what's the best places to do it and what, what do you point them to? Um, right. So a couple good places to go look for my work. Obviously you can go look for me on my author page on amazon.com. Um, and also if you want to go to my webpage at Georgia Tech, just to see not just what I'm working on, but everything we're doing with, uh, science fiction there where, We've been rocking it for 40 years. Come, come see how and why. And in that case, just 
Google sci-fi at Georgia Tech and you will come right up with us. I think that's the easiest way to find people. Um, yeah, it, it is my own work. I don't know. Keep your eyes out, people. I just uh, turned in two different manuscripts on Afrofuturism. So look for me uh, dropping knowledge mm. about the history Woo. of black science fiction soon. And I'm going to be writing an introduction for a new version of H.G. Wells's The Time Machine and The Chrononaut. So that should be coming out in next June, I think. Oh, Excellent. that that is awesome. Yeah. And and uh, yeah, we, we did a we did a full episode with Lisa. Uh, in, so you can go back in the Wayback Machine to earlier this year <laughs> and check out that full interview. And Lisa, yeah. I really appreciate your time. Um, Alec, yeah. are you okay with sticking, stick around for just a few more questions? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. Thanks everyone. Great chatting with you. Yeah. Thanks, thanks Lisa. You're awesome. All right. All right uh, take it easy. All right. Um, Alec, I just, just two or three more questions about this, this, um, uh, and we'll try to edit this seamlessly, maybe put sure. Lisa saying goodbye at the end. <laughs> um, so, uh, Alec, so this, yeah, this essay from Norman Spinrad started with a, with a review of, of, of your book. And you already talked about a little bit about how he criticized you for not, um, talking about A.E. Van Vogt. Um, have you heard from other voices for, that were from the new wave and from the golden age uh, about this book? Um, and I'm wondering, like, what has the reaction been from the older um, voices? Yeah, good question. Um, so I, I have heard from a lot of writers and, and, you know, in many cases, writers that I, I admire enormously. Um, some of them read the manuscript, you know, and, and give me feedback. And um, I, I'm very grateful to that. Um, so I, I have a couple of good stories here. So one is uh, Delaney. Uh, so I had emailed Chip Delaney to ask him about a uh, famous story about Campbell rejecting um, his his novel Nova, um, you know, and, and the story is that, you know, Campbell turned it down because he didn't feel that his writers could relate to a black protagonist. And I wanted to get Delaney's side of the story. And, um, you know, he, he basically confirmed, uh, you know, the version that I'd read elsewhere. And we had a very interesting email exchange. And, um, you know, I, I sent him the manuscript to read. And uh, I think he, you know, it's funny, like he, he, he liked the first half a lot. He did not like the second half. And, and I, I'm not entirely sure why. I, I, I was never quite able to, to, you know, have like a real conversation with him about that. Um, but it could be it was it was just too close to home. You know, I think um, when you get into like the, the 60s and 70s, you know, there are writers now who are still around who lived through it. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's more fraught for them than it is, uh, you know, when I talk about the 1930s and 40s. Um, and you see that some of the spin rat, I think, um, talks about how he was there. You know, he knew Asimov, he knew Heinlein. Uh, you know, so for him, it's a very strange experience to see it written about as he puts it, you know, as if I were writing about a historical period that, you know, like lay far in the past. Um, because, you know, I, I'm young enough where, you know, this is to me, it, it is history. It's something I had to reconstruct for myself. Right. Um, and I was always like, you know, curious as to how it would read to, to writers who had actually been through it. Um, but, you know, I've gotten great responses from people like Robert Silverberg, uh, George R. R. Martin, uh, you know, likes the book. Um, you know, like a lot of writers who I'm, I'm just happy to be talking to at all. Uh, <laughs> right. And, and I, I will say, you know, overall, the response has been much more positive than I ever expected because, you know, the book is very critical of Campbell. It, it's, it's critical of all these guys. And I didn't know how people would react. But, um, what I found is that a lot of older writers, especially, are grateful that this book even exists. 
and that I took Campbell seriously enough to devote this much yeah. space to his career and, and to kind of do for him what I thought he deserved, you know, to, to have like a really well-sourced, uh, you know, biography that, you know, I, I, I could kind of stand behind. And um, in some ways, you know, uh, it's, it's very flattering to Campbell. I, I think the, the, the book puts him at the center of science fiction in a way that, um, you know, hadn't been the case for a while. And, you know, to kind of make that argument, I also had to get into some of the messier stuff. And I think most of the readers I've talked to uh, acknowledge that and they understand that. Yeah. So since we do a Philip K. Dick podcast, we talk a lot about Don Wolheim from the of the Futurians fame. And uh, we had an experience similar where when we interviewed Barry Maltzberg, right, and we we had talked a lot because we get into a lot of the history of of how Dick wrote the books. Right. And so there was a lot of history around Man in the High Castle winning the Hugo. And when we interviewed Maltzberg, we had this experience where he got to tell us about being in the room with Don Wolheim when he found out that Man in the High Castle was nominated for a Hugo and how angry he got because <laughs> it wasn't even science fiction, you know, and these yeah. arguments going back that far. And it's a good reminder that, like, we still have people that were around for this history. And it was really amazing moment for Larry and I when we did that interview because we were like – because we've talked so much about Don Wolheim as a historical figure in the in the genre, and to be like, oh yeah, he sat in a room with him, <laughs> yeah. a firsthand story. Those those are it was cool, nice to hear. Yeah, and I think what that did for me in relation to what we're talking about with cancel culture today is it was a good reminder to me that to always remember that these were people, complicated, not perfect, but they were people. That we're trying to do the same things we're doing by using science fiction today, right? Well, that that uh, I want to I want to know from both of you what's what you feel about how much how much of someone's private life should should be part of their public persona should should it be full disclosure? Should we be reading Lovecraft's letters? Should we be basing our view of him on that kind of thing? Or from the work itself, uh, is that is a big part of cancer culture? Is is the what lies behind the the works of the person? Right. I mean, I would say as, as a biographer, um, I mean, I love gossip. Um, I think gossip <laughs> can be very revealing, um, yeah. and it can be it can be fun to read. Um, but you know, I, I don't know if it ever casts that much meaningful light on the work itself. But I think mm-hmm. it casts a lot of light on what it means to be a writer, you know, what it means to be a creative artist. Um, and as someone who's written novels and, and short stories, you know, I find this stuff fascinating. You know, I want to know what it means to be a working writer in the 1930s and the 1940s. I, w- I want to know what it was like to be an editor, uh, you know, at a stunning science fiction. And I want to know how that affected your personal life. Um, you know, in Campbell's case, you know, he had an incredibly messy personal life. And yeah. it's relevant because a lot of that mess came out of his agenda what he saw as his his mandate as a science fiction editor you know he he thought that he was going to be the kind of the steward or like the 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 sponsor of some great discovery which led him to collaborate with hubbard and essentially ended his marriage um his first marriage um and and also led him to marry his second wife so so you can't talk about 
you know, what I think is the pivotal moment in the history of, of science fiction, you know, the, the, that Hubbard-Campbell dynamic, mm-hmm. without explaining what that meant in Campbell's personal life. And, and I think it also raises these questions about, you know, was the, you know, Campbell's achievement uh, separable from his flaws, um, which, which come out very clearly when you talk about his marriages. Um, and, you know, I, I don't try to resolve the question, but I think it's a fair one. I think it's a, it's a fair question to ask, you know, what are the sacrifices that you make to kind of be the kind of man that Campbell wanted to be? What do you think, Dave? I know what you think, but can you tell the people what you think about a, an author or anyone's private life and their public persona? Well, I could tell you that for me personally, like as a writer, like I know that I'm, I take controversial positions because I'm, for example, I'm a militant vegan or whatever. I wouldn't want someone not to read my work just because I, I, because of your political views. Because of my political views. I like Neil Asher a lot as a modern science fiction writer. He's super right wing. We have nothing in common politically. Right. Orson Scott Card being another one that is a fantastic writer, but has terrible terrible views on the world yeah so i I don't i don't cancel i don't really cancel people personally um except for sometimes i guess if 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 i feel like dan simmons for example i think it bleeds through to the work flashback was very you know transparent and and like i thought it bled through in a way that was distasteful for me so but would i still read a dan simmons book sure so it is sort of a slippery slope when you look at it it can, it can enhance, it can very much enhance your experience of, of reading someone is knowing their history and knowing their life. But it can at times also sort of put that, you know, uh, Celine was a, a Nazi sympathizer, sort of, do I want to read any more of this person kind of view into your head as well. Oh, and excuse my brain fart. I remember the question. Okay, you might. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we will edit this um so my question is is after having worked on this book who do you think out of asimov heinlein campbell and hubbard who were the main focus of your book who is the most problematic or hard to deal with figure that you like you came away like with a changed view of having done all this research. Ooh. Well, okay. Uh, I, I mean, how much time do we have? Uh, you can, you know, you can we um, go. Because the answer is, is Asimov. Um, hmm. I, I knew in, I knew going in that a Campbell was going to be a challenging subject. I knew going in that Hubbard was Hubbard. You know, that's that's no secret. I had no idea he was know. a tushy grabber. You know, um, Asimov. But uh, Asimov, you know, I I think my view of him was always very positive. Um, he, he probably meant the most to me emotionally of all these writers uh, growing up. Um, and I, if I have one, one regret in the book, it's that I don't talk about what I think is a key point in Asimov's uh, story, which is that he was a serial harasser of women for decades and groped women at conventions and in private and in workspaces. You know, I mean, probably in the hundreds it's 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 really horrifying and you do talk about it in the book though not just for his career but for how women were treated within fandom you know during that time and it really changed so he was like the weinstein of his generation (laughs) he's sci-fi weinstein yeah yeah um you know i actually have an essay coming out probably next month about this um where i i Hmm. I, I try to get at some of the stuff that didn't end up in the book um but no it was it was it was sad 
because um, I still, you know, I mean, as you can tell from the book, you know, I, I still feel, you know, a lot of positive things about Asimov, and um, he's he's certainly very important to me in ways that I can't play down. Um, but he he did some awful things that I don't think have ever really been scrutinized outside a very narrow slice of science fiction fans. And I well, think that's, it, that's interesting. That it was a revelation to me reading your book. And I will say that it affected, I recently reread Caves of Steel and it totally did. I was looking for more of his treatment of women than I ever had reading Asimov in the past. Hmm. So you, 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 I think you did your job there, Alec. Like, okay, well, well good. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, and and yeah, going in, that was not kind of where I expected to end up. But um, you know, it, and that was true to a lesser extent with even the other, the other three uh, figures here. I, I, I learned a lot. I, I, I you know, it, the book ended up being a lot darker in some ways than I expected uh, right. because we're you know damaged difficult people and um you know it was important uh, to me to be honest about that yeah well and yeah for for all all of them i i found well i your book was fascinating and i had a a a really great time reading it and i learned a lot i think especially i just recently been reading the futurians you know the damon knight book Mm -hmm. and that's a pretty rosy uh picture of that era and so i think it's it's good that we we have the counterbalance and i think um and i just want to say that as somebody who feels our podcast is a part of the historical research of this field i think your book is incredible piece of work that is very essential to our understanding of the genre going forward right um thanks and uh, that's one of the reasons why you and Lisa were our dream team for this discussion. Uh, any last thoughts? Well, I, w- I have one last question. Okay. And this is a very basic question. Do you think cancel culture is necessary? I mean, I, it doesn't matter what I think. I think it exists. Um, you know, as I've said, I think it's, it's it goes, you know, it goes back further than most people realize. Um, right. I think it's been accelerated. Uh but, you know, I say this in the book, you know, the, the dynamics you see online today are the same dynamics you see in the 30s, except back then they were, you know, fanzines. conversations that happened in the, the letters columns of fanzines and, you know, mimeograph form. And it took weeks for these things to happen mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, a few, handful of clubs <laughs> in New York. And now it's on Twitter. It's on Reddit. You know, it happens very fast. Okay. So that, that to me is the main difference. Yeah. Um, I mean, but, a, a teenage Isaac Asimov was writing Clifford Samack letters, like saying how his story ended wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think the medium has changed. And, and, you know, I think we're still coming to terms as a culture with what that it really means, mm-hmm. um, which in itself is a good subject for science fiction. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think, um, you know, cancel culture. I mean, I don't have a great you know, button to put on this, this thought. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think like anything, it can, um, be, be harmful in some manifestations. Um, but in, in many ways, it's essential. Um, and I mm-hmm. think it's a, it's a difficult but necessary part of advancing, um, all kinds of art and, and certainly something like science fiction, which, you know, has always said that it's about change. And I think, um, you know, that extends to 
the way science fiction is written and practiced itself, um, along with, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the changes that it describes and the world around it. Excellent. Well, I hope in 10 years you write a book about the, the new wave. Uh, <laughs> the dangerous visions era because I would yeah. love to read that. Yeah, no, I mean, I I, I expect <laughs> I will come back to science fiction at some point. Uh, you know, as like a nonfiction writer, I don't know what form that's going to take. But um, mm-hmm. there, there are, I mean, one thing that I learned writing Astounding is that there are so many stories and so many people, um, you know, many of whom look nothing like Campbell, who deserve big books. Um, and I, I can't do it all myself. Um, yeah. And I hope other people, you know, like take up like that challenge and, and, and produce the biographies that these writers deserve. Well, and you know, yeah, and that's like some of the work that Lisa's doing with uh, Futures Female is, um, you know, it's really important work. Uh, so many names and that book I just never heard of. And now, mm-hmm. you know, before reading her book, C.L. Moore was not a name that, that I really knew. And now um, just a really important voice to me, you know, speaking especially as somebody from Indiana, because she was was a Hoosier, but um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, so uh, Astounding is a is a, a really fundamental uh, piece of, of work, and I know a lot of our listeners are, are primarily Philip K. Dickheads, and a lot of them don't go back to the Golden Age as often, and I hope that they do, because they could, they're, I, you know, saw a lot of impact of uh, for, you know, the foundations of the genre, which, of course, you know, Dick came out of in the next era. So, uh, Alec, I really appreciate your time. Uh, your book is amazing. Uh, we hope to, you know, have you back in the future uh, to talk about the genre. Um, are you you're writing a biography of some of in, in another field or are you working on? Something uh, yes. Else? Yeah. So I'm currently writing a um, biography of uh, Buckminster Fuller. Uh, oh, cool. Who, you know, Sweet. best known for his nudistic structures like domes, yeah. but, uh, you know, a futurist and a very strange, interesting person along the lines of, you know, the, the, the guys I've talked about in Astounding. So. Yeah, I worked on a, I worked on a play about Buckminster Fuller about oh, really? 15 years ago. So it was a, it was well, very you know, interesting. You know, he is, he is yeah. a incredibly intriguing figure and, um, it's it's a great subject that um you know i mean i'm not even close to being done but i'm hoping in a couple of years or so you'll see that book uh, in stories excellent oh well we look forward to it um and how can our listeners uh get more information about your work well uh you can look me up online uh, i'm easy to find um i do have uh several short pieces coming out i mentioned the one about asimov which is coming out um on public books uh, probably next month um, I have a piece on Campbell in the current issue of Analog Magazine, and I have another piece on Campbell and um, the writer Raymond F. Jones, uh, his story Noise Level is being reprinted in Analog, uh, I believe, in the next issue. And I have an introduction to that story, which uh, I-, I will say, I think, casts a lot of light on some of the issues we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I-, I would encourage people to seek out those uh, those, those pieces. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, thank you for joining Dickheads. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure.